on this week's episode of Master the Craft, you actually have an old student uh, named Kira on the show. Can you kind of set up for folks who Kira is and and why you were interested in having Kira on the show? Sure. You know, when when I met her, she she was a student at the University of Washington and wanted to be a Disney animator. And we would talk about because she was surprised that I knew all these Disney animators like knew their names. So we would talk about them. And one of the people we would talk about is Glenn Keane. Um, oh, funny. Who's done the show. Yeah. And she would <laughs> yeah. talk about how much she loved Glenn Keane. And we both would sort of geek out on how much we thought how great he, we thought he was. Then she ended up uh, becoming an animator at Disney um, mm. and working with Glenn on Tangled, where she did a bunch of uh, Rapunzel animation on Tangled, or at least some Rapunzel animation. I'm not sure exactly how much on Tangled. And then, um, and then that, that's actually how I met Glenn through Kira. Oh, funny. Yeah. Uh, well, so she literally had her dream come true. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? That's so cool. Yeah, I couldn't be happier for her. It's all she's ever wanted to do since she was a little kid. And uh, she got to do it and work with the best people and work on cool stuff. So she's she was the lead animator on uh, Judy Hopps, uh, animation supervisor on Judy Hopps for uh, Zootopia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, she's done. She's done all kinds of things. She's um, she's really good. She's really smart about what she does and how she does it. Um, yeah, I few people work as hard at their craft. I, I think that's a common denominator with uh, this show, with Masters of the Craft. Uh, the people uh, who I have been lucky enough to know and have on the show are people who are very serious about the craft and will push themselves and find ways to get better. And Kira is no different. A lot of people are, are sheepish about being on the show. They think they don't have anything to say. Um, and I think she was one of those people. Uh, because, you know, a lot of the people are older and and uh, older than she is and, and older than me often. Uh, but that's not the, the point of this is not that somebody's young or old or, you know, older or whatever. It's that they are practitioners of the craft. They are they have reached a certain level of proficiency and mastery of their craft over their craft. And Kira is one of those people and uh, deserves to be on this show alongside everybody else. So I'm glad she did it. Perfect. On this week's episode, we're going to have Kira. And if you haven't seen Zootopia, you should check out her work because she did an amazing job. Hello, and welcome to You Are a Storyteller, Masters of the Craft, a conversational series hosted by author and filmmaker Brian McDonald. In this episode, Brian is joined by Kira Letomaki, animator at Walt Disney Animation Studios and the animation supervisor behind Judy Hopps, the beloved protagonist in the 2016 film Zootopia. In this episode, Kira shares why fear and constraints drive her to do her best work and why sometimes less is more in telling great stories. Hey. Hi. It's it's uh I'm so glad you're doing this. Um I'm I'm so honored to do this. Like I, I'm, I, I will say my biggest fear is that you're going to have to ch change the title of your podcast for me because <laughs> this is, this is you're you're the master. I'm the apprentice, and this is a big honor. Oh well, th thank you. Um, yeah, here's the thing. Now I've known you. I was trying to figure out how long I've known you. 
do you have any idea how many years I've known you? Uh, I took your class in 2003. Okay. So. All right. Do that math. <laughs> okay. So yeah. Uh, a while. 18, 18 yeah. years. 18 yeah. years. Wow. That's crazy. I know. I know. Wow. But like our, our knowing each other is like a, a real adult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, when I first met you, you were, you were uh, going to the university of Washington and um, you wanted to be an animator. Yep. Um, now you're, you're a little like me in that we both knew what we wanted to do from the time from very young ages. How old were you? Well, I, I really think I was three. Okay. I don't know that I knew, well, I certainly didn't know what an animator was, but I saw Sleeping Beauty when I was three. Pinocchio was actually the first movie I saw in the theaters. And I, I think I had- It's a good one to be the first one. It's good. Yeah. And I, I think I had seen, you know, they, they did a lot of, especially on the, like the VHSs back then and on like Wonderful World of Disney, they show a lot of behind the scenes. And right. so I think I had seen people making- these movies and I thought I want to do that and you always hear the term animator and I was like I want to be an animator but I remember praying thinking like I don't I hope I don't have to decide what the character looks like and I hope mm -hmm. I don't have to figure out like all, all these other things because I really wanted to do like the acting mm -hmm. um, and so it worked out that that's indeed <laughs> indeed yeah, the is. job of the animator so yeah. that's cool so you ended up exactly where you where you wanted to be yeah. Exactly yeah. at the place and exactly at the job. Um, I know. That's, yeah, that doesn't happen for that many people. I couldn't, I, I couldn't be happier for you and, and, and prouder of you because I remember, you know, when you were a person on the outside wanting to get in. Um, yeah. Actually, after you left and other students would come through that program, you became kind of a legend because you became sort of a North Star. Like, oh, she, I know. The funny thing was to me was, it's like, well, I've seen students go on to things. I know you can do it. And they just thought it was this impossible thing. But you became this thing that made it, made it possible. So that, that's really, that, you didn't mean to do that, but that's what you did. Oh, I mean, that, that is so nice. Uh, but really, it's like, you know, I had so many people helping me. You know, I don't, I, I don't feel like there was never a time where it's like, I've achieved this thing. Like I achieved my dream. Like you certainly were, were such a huge part of me even being able to, you know, I, I use the things that you taught me every single day in what I do. And I, I feel like that is, if, if anybody thinks I have good work or something insightful, it is in large part to the things that I learned from you. So it, it's like, I feel like I've just stolen these, <laughs> these nuggets and this knowledge along the way. And, and I am reaping the benefits of being able to like live, live out my dream and really do my dream job. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I, wow. That, that, that means a lot. Here's, here's what I think. Um, if when you are a teacher, sometimes students come through and you think, how lucky am I to have this student? And, and so you're one of those people, you're at the top of that list. And the other thing is you think they would have learned this anyway. They would have learned it from someone. They would have learned it somewhere um, because you had a hunger to learn it. Um, that's part of what a teacher responds to is, Oh, this, the enthusiasm and the passion, you would have found it. I'm just, 
I'm, I would just have to be standing in the right place when, you know, you know what I mean? To, to be the person, but I, I think it, you were learned at some place. Oh, well, thank you. But I, you know, God was very good in, in giving me you as a teacher because that was everything that I needed. So, wow. So uh, I want to go back to your childhood, but I want to ask you, um, what is it that I taught you? It may not be specific. It may be um, internalized now, but do you have any idea what it is I taught you that you use or how do you use that? Yeah. Name? I think, well, even though I don't like, I'm not in the story department, I'm not any of these things. I think you broke down story in a way that I, I, I thought it was just this, this nebulous thing that I would never be able to understand because only like super creative people like right. do it. And, and you really taught that it's all about observation and you taught, like you were, you were teaching me how to see things and and largely that is the job of an animator is to be observant and, and to really pay attention to the things that you are observing. And so there's that, but then there's also the golden theme of we are all the same. And I, I apply that in a way where, and I hope I'm applying it in, in a way that you approve of, but it's um, when I approach a scene where a character you know, has to do something. A lot of times, us animators, we film reference of ourselves acting it out. Not because, like, I'm not great in front of the camera. That's why I became an animator. I like acting, but I get to do it behind the scenes. I'm like the shy actor who doesn't want to be on camera. But I, so I can't, you know, I can't put on this character and try to be something that I'm not. But I feel like that's okay. Because I find that sort of, autobiographical part of what the character is saying and I do it as if it's real for me mm -hmm. and then I look at that I make observations and I I translate that onto the character hopefully in poses and facial expressions that are on model and correct for that character so that you're not seeing me but hopefully that the, the truth of the experience, uh, it's real for me. And so I, I'm, I'm betting on if it's real for me, it'll be real for somebody else. I, well, you do that well. You know, it's funny. I, I can't see it. But Glenn Keane told me that when he watches uh, the stuff you did on Rapunzel, he can see you. <laughs> that, yeah, it's, it's yeah. funny. My parents watched the movie in the theater and my mom, who I, th my mom is the best animation critic ever. If you, if, if any students out there need feedback on their scenes, show it to my mom. She's, she knows, she knows what she's talking about, wow. but um, she watched the movie and afterwards she asked me, she was like, did you animate the scene? And I said, yes, I did. And she could tell because she saw me in it. And, um, and that was really like, oh, that's a little scary that they could see me, you know, and recognize me through that. Um, it, it was an interesting thing because like, you know, in being such a fan of the hand-drawn films, you know, like, you know, you watch these little movies, you're like, oh, that's an Ollie Johnston scene or that's a, you know, Frank Thomas one or Milk Call or, you know, all of these guys. And you know, there was always, I, I feel like there is a little bit of this perception of like, when it goes into CG, you lose that because there is this, 
you know, this disconnect from like, it's not hand drawn anymore. So somehow the, the hand of the animator is, is removed from it. Um, but when I watch the movies that I get to work on at Disney, it's literally like a scrapbook of seeing all of my friends and coworkers like performing their scenes. Like I see them in the work sure. and ho- and hopefully it's not a po- at a point where it's distracting, where it's like, Oh, that's, that's Tony. And that's not, you right. know, right. <laughs> Rapunzel or, you know, yeah. like it, it's, it's not taking you out of the movie because it's so disjoint from who that character should be. But I, but I do, I see, like, I recognize the people in their work. Um, and I remember one other time at work, I had worked on um, Wreck-It Ralph and the villain of Wreck-It Ralph is King Candy. And he's kind of an Edwin, you know, yeah. real cartoony character and I animated this scene and a friend of mine is like that looks like you <laughs> <laughs> and I was like thank you <laughs> okay I just wanted to I wanted to know how you were using that stuff and I didn't want to forget to bring it up so now I want to go back let's go back in time now so you're a little kid and you want to be uh, an animator oh you don't know exactly you do or whatever you whatever you think this is i had sort of a similar thing where i wanted to make movies but i didn't make a distinction between live action and animated and being the special effects person versus being the writer versus being the director like it was all just making movies to me i didn't you know once i figured out who the director was that seemed like a good job to me um not not for ego reasons um, a lot of people want to be the director because they want to be in charge. Um, and that wasn't my thinking. I, I wanted to do that because I thought it was the best use of my skills. Um, yeah. You know, I thought, no, that's what I can do. And I also, Ron Howard said this about directing, you get to hang out with everybody. And that part appealed to me too. Um, yeah. Getting to hang out with everybody. Um, but anyway, so um, uh so you were a kid, you didn't know what you wanted to do exactly. How did you, what, what, were you driven? Just, I mean, I was, I'm, I remember being a very single-minded kid about what I wanted to do. It's all I read about practically. It's all I thought about. I watched movies in a very specific way. What, what were you doing? Yeah, I, you know, it's funny. I have, so I think I decided when I was three, but like I have a, uh, like a worksheet from kindergarten where, you know, they ask you that question, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wrote, well, I wrote a drawer for Disney because I didn't know the word animator at that point. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's as long as I can remember that has always without question, without hesitation, that has been my goal. And so I, you know, I drew a lot as a kid. Like if you go back through all of the drawings that my mom has saved, they're always Mickey Mouse, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Little Mermaid, you know, like I was singularly, well, there's cats in there too, because I love cats, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, it was sort of those two categories. And yeah. then I remember. I, I want to stop you real quick. You know what I did? is I learned how to do Walt Disney's signature because I thought, well, that's on all the drawings. I, I guess I have to know how to do that if I'm going to do the job. So I learned how to do. <laughs> that's cute. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. <laughs> as long as you don't use your power for evil and like forge his signature. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I don't, I never thought about that, but. Hmm. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, good. 
Well, Disney signed books are worth a lot of money. So <laughs> <laughs> I bet they are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I, this was also before the internet was in my home and, or even available. And, and so I remember, I, I think I got a book on the art of animation by Bob Thomas, which is actually a book that was published back in the fifties for like the making of sleeping beauty. And then he updated it over the years. And I had gone to, I'm so spoiled. I got to go to Disney world uh, on a spring break trip with my parents mm-hmm. and they have that um, they used to have uh, the Florida studio actually in the park. Right, it was, yeah. it's Hollywood studios now, but it was MGM then. And they'd have, you know, big glass walls and you could see into the studios and you could see these people making the movies. And then they had a little video where Robin Williams like walked you through the process of like how animated movies are made. And then like every good tour, it ends in the gift shop. And in the gift shop, (laughs) I got this art of animation book. And I remember it had little profiles on some of the people that were making these things, Glenn Keane, Andreas Deja, you know, and so I was, you know, reading a little bit. This was the first time I was exposed to like, oh, the names behind the magic for me. Yeah. And I was sort of reading about the process, but also they had like nice images, still images from the movies. And so I would try to copy them. You know, I'd be like, okay, I'm going to look at this picture and I'm going to draw this and I'm going to try to get the proportions the same. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first drawing that I did where I was like, I think that looks like her was uh, Belle. I had drawn Belle. Uh-huh. It looks terrible now that I look back at it, but I was like, I think I can do this. <laughs> I well, think I can be an animator. <laughs> but that was a good thing. That was a good delusion, right? Because it <laughs> yeah. was, right? Yeah. Because it propelled you forward, right? Yeah. 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 So I drew, I drew a lot of like kind of copying and then I sort of, graduated and then I started trying to copy like real people from photographs and drawing them. And, um, but the other thing that I got in that, uh, when I went to the, on the tour was I actually, I think I asked somebody that worked in the shop in the gift shop there about, uh, how you get to be an animator and they had a photocopied like portfolio tips packet that they gave me. And I wish I had it here. It's actually still at my parents' house in Seattle, but in there they had like a lot of life drawings and like zoo drawings and things like that. And I mean, I was still very young at that point. So I don't, I did, it embarrassingly took me a long time before I connected those two. And I was like, Oh, I should be doing that. Um, But uh, yeah, I was trying to just get as much information as I could and really like try to copy the drawing. So it's like, well, if I can show them that I can draw a bell, maybe they'll let me work there. <laughs> sure. I, you know, it's funny. I, um, I used to go to the zoo because I was a big Ray Harryhausen, you know, Ray Harryhausen yeah. was a Brian fan. And so I'm like, I would read something and they, well, they used to, you know, they studied gorillas to see how they moved. I'm like, I got to go to the zoo. So I would go and watch animals move. I thought maybe I would do stop motion. I did a little bit in my time, but not a lot of it, but, but I, I, I thought that's what you did. And so I did the same kind of thing where it's like, oh, I better be doing that. So I would go to the zoo all the time. To yeah. To, to just observe animals and their behavior. Um, yeah. Another big moment for me was I, my very first piece of animation that I ever did was a flounder from The Little Mermaid because he was 
little simpler than Ariel. And I did like a, I did like a side profile drawing of him. And I thought, I'm going to draw a lot of these and I'm going to have him opening his mouth. And I stapled the pictures together and I made my first flip book. Wow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, you know, but I think I was learning those things just from those behind the scenes. Like when the VHSs came out, they always had like a little preview of like what they were working on next. And they showed people flipping drawings and um, yeah, I mean, all of that, those glimpses behind the magic really helped me figure out like, oh, this is a job. You know, yeah. I could maybe do this. So oh, you were later, you were later than the wonderful world of Disney, right? You yeah. Because- I mean, they still had it. They still had it, but, it, okay. uh, you know, I think they would show like, you know, the parent trap on Sunday nights or something. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, when I was a kid, they showed a lot of behind the scenes stuff. They showed a lot of like they would show the multi-plane camera uh, from Bambi stuff. They would show you all that stuff, even though it was old, even at that time. It was like something yeah. that in the 40s. But I didn't know I was a kid. It seemed like it was new to, it was new to me. Right? Yep. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember that uh, almost hunger for any behind the scenes. Anytime I saw behind the scenes, I was there. Um, yeah. There used to be a show called... Uh, that's Hollywood in the seventies. There was a show called that's Hollywood. And it was a 20th century Fox show. I didn't realize that at the time, but now I go, Oh, all those movies were 20th century Fox movies, but they would show behind the scenes stuff and how something was made. And, and I never missed an episode of, of that's Hollywood. Um, yeah. I don't see it on YouTube, but, uh, but I know yeah, it probably is. Yeah, it might be. Uh, I, but I, ne- I can't never believe. missed an episode. I can't believe all the stuff I missed that I see on YouTube now. And I'm like, how come I didn't know about this when I was 10? You know? <laughs> yeah. But somehow you got there anyway. You didn't, you didn't need it apparently. So, um, so you were doing that stuff. You were, you, you realized, Oh, I, I have to, you know, I can make flip books. I can do my own animation. Um, and then, and then what were the steps you took? Um, what were the steps? Well, that continued for a long time. I remember being in high school and taking, you know, the art class and always telling everybody, I mean, even, even in English class, like we'd have to do like speeches or reports about, you know, like we'd have to research a career and then <laughs> give a speech. And I would do drawings of like, like a montage of Disney characters. And then I would give a speech about working at Disney and, researching, you know, what you'd have to do. So it was like my every assignment, every project, if I could focus it in that direction, even if the, the, you know, the subject was not related to it, I would try to focus it that way. I did and that. Yeah. And I had, I mean, I had great teachers all through school. I remember one art teacher who was really kind, but he, he was sort of warning me of like, this, it's a real tough industry. You know, so, you know, I, I think he was just trying to uh, prepare me for not being eternally crushed if that weren't necessarily a reality. Um, but I, you know, I continued to just sort of believe that that, that was what I was meant to do and that, <laughs> and that it would happen. Do you have a feeling about that kind of warning one way or the other now as an adult looking back or do you just think well that was it was kind-hearted do you think it was wise do you think it was ill-advised do you do you have a feeling about that now i mean i think i think his intention was absolutely kind-hearted i think it was also very realistic because i think one of the things that i i see sometimes is i mean 
I think my job is pretty cool. Like I get to work on like the things that I like to watch just for in my free time, you know, kind of thing. And I, I see a lot of, um, fans. Like I have the great privilege of, you know, working at like the D23 Expo, which is like Disney's Comic-Con kind of thing. And you meet a lot of like fans and I'm absolutely one of them, but sometimes they're like, Oh, I want to do that too. But, but it's like, this stuff takes a lot of effort and it's really hard. And a lot of times it's not always fun, right? you know, and there's, and it, you know, it's not, it's not easy. It's pain. There is a lot of pain involved in it, um, even though it's super rewarding. And so it's sort of like, unless you're sure that you love this, this is not kind of a casual career decision. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot about, that conversation that I had with my art teacher. And I feel like he was telling me that like, this is not a casual career decision. So if you want that, absolutely. He was very encouraging. He's like, if you want that, go for it. Absolutely. But he was warning me that the road would be hard. Mm -hmm. And that was absolutely true. You know? So, um, I, I thought that was, that was wise advice. It was, it was just a little bit of a reality check. Sure. You know, I, I talked to a student once and she said, uh, she said to me, I, because she knew I had worked with Pixar and she says, I want to work at Pixar. I'm like, okay. She goes, how do I do that? I'm like, well, what do you want to do at Pixar? And she goes, well, I don't know. It's like, well, they, they don't hire people just because they want to work there. You have to have something that you do. And that was a revelation. She just thought it would be fun to be there. It's like, yeah, it, you know, it's a, it's a, it's fun to be there, but it is a place where people are working and they all have jobs to do and they all know what they are. There's not somebody just wandering around getting paid. Right. They anything they do. Like, right. It's this interesting thing. I think some, sometimes maybe because it's animated and it's this, it's a fantasy environment on, on the other end, it's very, you know, you go there and you get transported, but doing the work is just, it's work. The, yeah. there, there's no magic for the magician. Right, (laughs) you see all the stuff behind the scenes so you it's a different thing um but people yeah the work is not um a reality to a lot of people who who dream of this kind of work or this kind of a job so yeah something you said to me once has stayed with me for a long time of like i think you said i think i was eavesdropping you were having a conversation with somebody else and you're like well do you know how to play checkers and the guy was like, well, yeah, of course I know how to play checkers. You're like, well, I don't (laughs) because I've spent all of my energy, like trying to learn about and focus on this, this one thing. And that's sort of how I feel about animation is it takes kind of all of your energy, you know? Um, And so it's not for the faint of heart of like, Oh yeah. Like nine to five. Let me just, you know, (laughs) right. Yeah. It's not that kind of work. Yeah. Um, Right. And when you were talking about observation earlier, that observation thing doesn't go off. Right. It's not no. just there when you're working. It's always there. Um, you know, it's there as a writer. It's there as an animator. Like, oh, look at the way that kid is moving. Look at the way like you can't, you know, <laughs> like, you, right. know you can't turn it off. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even on, even on particular scenes and assignments, you know, the, there's the adage of like animators never finish their work. They just get it taken away. You know, Mm -hmm. like at some point we have to turn it in, but for, 
I, I would say 99.9% of animators, it's like, we're never ready for that moment. We're like, oh, it's not done yet. Like, it's not as good as it needs to be yet. There's always right. still things that we're seeing that are wrong, that need to be fixed, and that could be better. Or we're frustrated because we don't see it, but we know that it, we can see that it's not as good as it should be, you know? Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, that thing, it's like you go to sleep at night, even though you're done working, you're like, okay, how can I fix that pose? How can I... <laughs> So I have a friend who's an, an illustrator. Uh, he's at Pixar now, but he, he's never satisfied with any drawing. He's always been one of the best illustrators I've known, always. I remember when he was in art school, I remember everybody was just like, well, he's just great. Like he, he's very good. He's never satisfied with anything he does. And I talked to him about it once and he goes, well, that's because once I've drawn something, I know how to do it better. Right. So and that never ends. And what I've seen with people who are good at what they do is that kind of is the case. They kind of they, they are always reaching to be better. That's part of what makes them good. And so once they do something, they 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 they've gone through the process and it's almost like a rehearsal for the next like Now I can do it better, but that'll always be the case. And so you do have to take it away. Um, and there is always a little bit of dissatisfaction, I think. Um, you know, occasionally you'll go, ah, I hit that one out of the park, but often <laughs> it's the other way around. And you think if I had a little bit more time, if I had a little bit more time, um, yeah, do that forever. yeah. One of the things for me that, and I hate this, that this always happens, but the moment that I feel confident about like, okay, I've done my blocking on the scene. I think it's pretty good <laughs> without fail. The moment I have that moment of pride, I show it in dailies and it's like way off, way off. And, and it's, it, it has taught me that it's like, if I feel confident about something, I'm like, oh no, what's wrong? There's something <laughs> wrong here. Because it, it's more often not the, the time that I'm really, you know, sort of not worried about it, but it's like, there is a little bit of a fear of like, that maybe I can't do this. Yeah. And that fear drives me to do my best. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Um, yeah. The other thing that you're talking about is something I tell people to do uh, with screenplays, which I think I've talked about on the show. But so a lot of times people, they'll want me to read a screenplay. And uh, I, I tell them this is, I, first of all, I don't want to read a screenplay that is your first draft or whatever. I want you to get it bulletproof before you hand it to me. But here's the thing. I tell people, write it, get it as good as you can get it. Then print it out. Pick out the perfect color for the cover. Put that cover on it, bind it, then hand that script to someone you trust. And the second you hand it to them, you'll know everything that's wrong with it. Yep. Because all of a sudden you're looking through their eyes. Yeah. Right. And so nobody has to say anything right in dailies. When you see it through other people's eyes, you say, oh, that's not right. That's not right. That's not right. They yep. may also tell you, but you also, you know, already. Yeah, it, it is that thing. It also happens like, I mean, we're all working from home right now, but when we are in the studio, we go to dailies and it's a, like a theater room. So we have a big screen and, you know, I'm working on the little screen at my desk. Right. The moment you see your work, you know, zoomed out to this like giant 
size, it amplifies all of the mistakes. And suddenly it's like, I see it for the first time. And I'm like, how did I not catch that before? And why have I publicly embarrassed myself now? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But that's, that's the, you know, the thing about this kind of creative work is that it's a vulnerable place. People don't understand how vulnerable it is to create and present to the world. Here's my thing. You know, it's, it, it, it's, uh, it's a hard thing to do. I don't think people yep. understand that part of it either. Um, but that's the, that's where the glory is. When you, when you slay that dragon and work through that and you can show your stuff to the, I mean, you know, when you work on something like Tangled and you're in the movie theater and these people don't know you and they don't know anything, they're just invested in the, in the character and, and her struggle. Um, you've put yourself out there so that they can have that experience. Yeah. You've been vulnerable so they can have that experience, whether or not they even know that you're there. Yeah, well, and it, it kind of goes back to me of, uh, of just how I approach the scenes, like the acting, that's me. And so that's one of those things of like, you, you put yourself into these characters and on the screen and you're showing it to people for feedback and you have to have a thick skin. You have to know that it's not a personal attack or whatever, but if they don't like something, there is a little bit of it. It's like, you feel like, but that was me. Right. And you don't like me kind right, of thing. No, that's true. You know? But that's how you know you're doing it right, too. Yeah. Right? If, if it was separate from you, then there's something you're not putting in there. Right? Yep. Yep. So that, that sting is part of it. Is, um, you know, I mean, you're, you're sort of lucky you're not there with milk call because, you know, <laughs> apparently he didn't pull any punches in daily. Yeah. 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 No, I mean... I got to say, though, I appreciate the milk calls in my life mm -hmm. because they're the people that, you know, um, you know, aren't going to sugarcoat it. They're not worried about your uh, well, I mean, the milk call was probably worried about somebody's feelings, but it's like they're not worried about uh, the personal injury that's going right. to occur. They're just objectively kind of looking at the work, giving what they think is wrong about it yeah and the time that i have had blunt feedback that has been the most clarity i've had and it's also i mean you know you can kind of go two ways you can you can be paralyzed by that and cry you know cry in a little ball and and not be able to move past that or you can take that real advice and and go okay now i need to fix this i need to apply this to my work and I often, when I get blunt feedback that is critical and maybe not what I wanted to hear, I often do my best work on the sure. other side of that. Yeah. So, um, so I appreciate that too. Um, you know, it's, but it's hard. It's, it, you're very much putting yourself out there and I'm a people pleaser. And so that's real scary, you know? Mm. Do you, um, when you hear feedback like that, the worst, the, or I, I shouldn't say the worst kind of feedback, but the feedback that hits the hardest for me is stuff that I sort of knew already that I thought I could get away with. You know uh -huh. what I mean? Like, I'm just gonna, yep. I can't quite solve this problem, but I think it'll be okay. And then there's, what's this player? You know, what's this thing? It's like, oh, 
man. Now, now I have to do the work. And you can't fix it. That's the interesting thing. Yeah. You do have it in you to fix it when somebody points it out. Uh, yeah. But it often seems impossible in the moment. Like, that's the best I can do. And then when they say, you got to fix that, you can fix it. It's interesting. Yeah. 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 I, and I think maybe why that feels the worst is because if you, if you had an inkling that maybe that's not right, then, you know, like when it's called out, I, I certainly feel like I didn't do my best because mm-hmm. my best would have been like, I'm feeling like something's not right here and going and investigating it <laughs> instead right. of feeling like, okay, maybe I, maybe it'll be fine. You know? Yeah. So. All right. We're moving back and forth in time. So I want to go back now to <laughs> you still aren't an animator. You still want to do that. Um, we can go up to uh, the university of Washington. We can go that far. Let's go there. That's okay. right. So, so, uh, so what happened then? Well, can I back up and how I got there? Yes, you can. Okay. Um, because in that art of animation book by Bob Thomas that I was reading all the little blurps about, uh, you know, these legendary, you know, supervising animators, one of the key, um, components of all of that was like, they all went to CalArts. And so I had in my mind, I'm going to go to CalArts because that's where the Disney animators go to school. Yeah. And, um, so when it, when the time came to apply to college, it was right around the time that CG had really sort of taken hold in the industry. Toy Story had come out, um, you know, not quite 10 years before, but maybe six years mm-hmm. before that. And uh, Pixar was, uh, you know, I, think, I don't know, it, like Shrek had happened and uh, Monsters, Inc. was coming out and things like that. And, and it just seemed like the industry was really kind of going the way of CG. And I didn't have any connections to people in the industry, except my dad. Uh, my dad is an electrical engineer. <laughs> my mom is a chemist. And so I have like two very like math science minded parents. And then here I am like, I want to be an artist. <laughs> yeah. And they were always very supportive, but it was like this world of art and art school and things like it was just. Let me just say this. I've talked to your dad. He could not be more supportive and, and more cool. I, I always like getting a, a message from, um, from your dad. And, uh, yeah, he's yeah. a very cool dude. So anyway. Oh, yeah. well, he's, he's a fan as well. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, you know, it was, it, they were always very, never, never batted an eye of, of like, oh, you're going to take this art career. Um, but it was just, we didn't know anything about the industry, you know, or how you got into it or what to do a portfolio, you know, like, it was just a foreign thing. And so my dad worked with somebody whose nephew, as it always goes, whose nephew worked at Disney and uh, he was not uh, an animator, um, but he, he, uh, he's a camera guy. So he worked in layout and kind of did, you know, like the cinematography stuff. And so got his email and emailed him of like, hey, I want to be an animator. Can you like give me some advice of where I should go to school and things like that? I'd like to be where you're at, you know, mm-hmm. uh, at Disney. And he was very nice. And he sent me back this email and he said, this is great. You know, CalArts is a good school. But if I can give you any advice looking into the future, you should really learn CG and the computer. And so I was like, oh, okay, I need to learn the computer. And at that time, CalArts didn't have a CG program. It was all kind of traditional at that point. I visited CalArts, loved it, 
still love it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> still wish I could go there. Yeah. Uh, uh, but I thought, well, you know what? I really, my ultimate goal is I want to work at Disney. So I need to make sure that every choice that I'm making is maximizing that possibility. Mm-hmm. So much so that I even, uh, I, I took French as my language in high school and was a French major for a while in college because Disney had three animation studios, Burbank, Orlando, and Paris. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, if I need to go to Paris, I need to speak French. So I'm going to learn French. So I made my language choice based off of wanting to work at Disney. Sure. Um, so I had, when, when I got the, the advice to learn the computer, which was very wise advice, I went on the internet, which was still kind of dial up at that point and uh-huh. <laughs> very slow <laughs> to research on. Yeah. And Pixar, Pixar at the time had a list of recommended schools, which, uh, you know, I could, I didn't find on like a Disney website or anything, but Pixar had it. And they had two lists of schools, uh, separated into artistic and technical. And the university of Washington was at the top of the technical list. And I thought, huh? Okay. So the university of Washington's got good computer stuff. It's also a, like a, you know, a full-fledged university, I can take art there. So I can maybe double major. I can do both tracks there. And so, and it was in state. And so just, you know, practically speaking, it was cheaper. And, you know, it was, it was the wiser decision for me at the time. And so I ended up choosing the University of Washington with the goal of learning the computer and doing art. Mm-hmm. So, and kind of trying to make my own major. So, so yeah, so that's how you got there. And uh, yeah. yeah, so I met you um, uh, when you were taking, um, um, what do they call that program? The, the summer story class. I don't yeah. know. It was, it was during the summer, right? So it the, was, oh, so it, you, I met you during the summer. Okay. I think so. I think so. It was like intro to storyboarding or it, it was basically, you know, you were teaching the story before the capstone. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, I would teach. So, yeah, the way it worked is I would teach story in the summer. Some of those students would actually be part of the capstone. And, um, and then I, during that, I would be sort of the story consultant all the way through uh, the films that, that you were producing or making then. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I... Yeah, I couldn't remember exactly if you were a summer student or not. Um, well, I know I took your class before I was supposed to. Okay. So, uh, so for those that don't know, so I at the University of Washington, I ended up majoring in computer science, which was a whole lot more technical than I, I think. I mean, I my dad knew, I knew, I knew, but like I didn't realize maybe I didn't need to go as technical, um, but. The, the computer science department had at the senior level, they had this year long animation capstone. And it was a series of classes where you got to learn CG animation, make a short film. And, you know, it had, it had your class listed as, you know, intro to storyboarding and story. And I was like, Oh, this is all the stuff I want. And so, uh, but you had to be a, uh, I, well, I thought at the time that you had to be a computer science major 
to be in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it was only available for kind of, I think like junior, senior level um, people. And, but I remember your class was um, open. Like they were allowing people that weren't necessarily going to go into the capstone to take it. And I remember talking to Barbara, who was the kind of the professor over this whole thing um, and saying, Hey, I, I do want to take the capstone, but can I take this class now? And I took it and I loved it so much. I ended up taking it like three or four more times. You took it a lot. Yeah. 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 And then I, I think I TA'd for the class as well so that I could just sit. I mean, it was. Oh, no, it was good. It, it was right. good to have you around. So you were around a lot. And it was weird when you left because like, well, it was curious. You're supposed to be here. <laughs> like you were, because it was, it was a, it was a while. I don't know how long, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I stayed even after I graduated for a I while. So yeah. 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 So it was, it was uh, what, like four years maybe or. Yeah. Something, something like that. I mean. Yeah. Yeah, since at least like 2006, probably. Yeah. So three, yeah. three years. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you like it so much <laughs> <laughs> um, to take it that many times. But um, I hope it helped to get it into your bones. That's what I'm always trying to get. I'm get, trying to get people to the point where it's not as intellectual as it first started. You know what I mean? That That it becomes part of just how you process yeah and you can diagnose problems and you you have the vocabulary and the framework to diagnose problems but you can feel it and understand what you're feeling like that doesn't work i think it's a first act problem if we did this and this and this right um yeah you know what i'm talking about to that absolutely i mean i feel like especially coming you know even even though i said i wanted to be an artist like i i still did a very kind of analytical major but the thing that I loved kind of about math was that, okay, well, you know, here's your equation. If you show your work, you can get, get to the answer. And there's like a right and a wrong answer. And I felt like you broke down story. You made story objective instead mm-hmm. of this subjective thing for me that I couldn't, I couldn't be creative enough to like even approach or, mm-hmm. or try to understand. Because I remember that very first class I called my parents afterwards and I was like, I just took the most amazing class ever. I'm so excited to be here. Cause I got to say, I was, I was a little bit in not, I wasn't depressed, but I was feeling kind of the struggle of how am I ever going to get to my dream? Because I was, I was, you know, taking programming and algorithms and doing all these things that didn't feel like it was getting me closer to Disney. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were hard, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I remember I remember taking your class and, and one of the first things you said, you talked through were the seven steps oh, once yeah. upon a time and every day. And because of this and because of this until finally, and ever since that day. And it was like, Oh, there's a structure here. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. okay. And then you talked about armature and you talked about, you know, like the premise and the whole story became a proof, almost like a mathematical proof of yeah. like, here's your premise. Here's your argument. Now this is your conclusion. Yeah. And it was like, Oh, I get it. I can wrap my mind around this because even, even if I don't have the best premise ever, I can figure out what the pieces need to be for mm-hmm. this thing to make it work. And maybe I need to, you know, be creative and, and, you know, think of a good armature or think of these good things. But, um, it, it felt like you made it within my reach to mm-hmm. analyze and to improve upon. And so it gave me, 
it, it, it just, it, it solidified it of like, I can get better at this. I'm not great, but I can get better. Oh, good. Um, so yeah. Anyway. Oh, that's good. Um, good. That's exactly what I would want to be able to do for somebody to make them say, Oh, this is accessible. I, I, I can do this. And it, and it gives you the tools again to, to diagnose problems, to see what problems might be, not just in your work, but in other work. Um, um, and it's funny because I often call it story, man. Yeah. Yeah. I often call it like, like, um, I've talked about it with the, the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where uh, the ending is wrong. And right. uh, I loved the movie when I was a kid, when it came out. But uh, after, I mean, I read the script a lot. I bought the script. I read it a lot. I was way into it. And then one day I was like, this ending is not right. And later, Steven Spielberg also said the ending wasn't right. But what was interesting, so at the end of that movie, this guy who's obsessed with spaceships, uh, this, these you know, UFOs gets on a UFO and goes away, but he has a family and kids and a wife and stuff. And I, and I, it's sort of treated as this happy ending, but I was like, but he just left his family right. to go into space for who knows how long. And uh, because there's also these other characters that are, have been gone for decades who are getting off the ship as he's getting on. And Spielberg said, well, at the time I wrote that movie, I didn't have kids. And so I wouldn't have written it that way now um, because I have kids and I realize he's leaving his kids behind. And uh, I, don't, I don't have kids, but when I watched it, the story math is off. It's like, well, you can't make it a happy ending if a guy leaves his wife and kids. It doesn't work. Um, it does, the math doesn't add up. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, I always think you can, if you took out the UFO thing and you made it something else, you took out the UFO thing and you made his thing an addiction to drugs or to gambling or something. And at the end, he chose that over his family. It would be clear to everybody that it was the wrong decision. Yeah. Uh, but because yeah. of nice, sparkly, shiny UFOs, uh, everybody thought it was cool. <laughs> But uh, um, anyway, but I often refer to it as story math. So it's interesting that you equated it with math. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it but it, it was just one it, accessible is exactly the right way to think about it, because it, it just felt so inaccessible to me before. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, OK, I, I feel like maybe I can understand this. I'm probably not going to become a screenwriter, but I felt like, oh, I can I can apply this to the characters that I'm animating. Why? How are they acting? why are they, you know, doing these gestures or, you know, yeah. I, I feel like I can take that and abstract it to what I'm doing as an animator, because ultimately I'm a piece of telling the story. I'm, I'm a storyteller in my role right. here. So, um, yeah, so that was eye opening and so helpful. Oh, good, good. So you left. Uh, so when you, when you graduated and, and stopped TAing, <laughs> yeah. for me, you, 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 uh, you then went to California. Am I correct? I did. I, well, I, while I was finishing up TAing at uh -huh. UW, uh, there was this brand new, like kind of, I don't know, new concept of, uh, animation mentor, which was an online animation school. And it was started by, you know, two animators at Pixar and one at ILM. And they were going to teach you over webcams, how to animate and it was it was one of these things where it was like this sounds great but 
I don't know, I just went to a major university. I have a BS in computer science. It was just the, the concept of like going to school online was, was not a big thing at that point. Yeah. Um, but I was like, you know what? I, the thing that I was really missing was I don't know any professional animators. Mm-hmm. I don't know anybody who, who is operating at the level that I want to be who right. can look at my work and tell me how far away I am and yeah. what I need to do to get where they're at. I just um, want to say this about knowing professional animators because you and I, when you were a student, would geek out over Glenn King. Yeah. We like bonded over our admiration for Glenn King. Um, but we both know now. So, you know. It's crazy, crazy world. I know. I know. <laughs> but we, we spent a lot of time geeking out about Glenn King specifically, I remember. Yeah. Well, the other thing that was so striking to me uh, when I met, not only that first class like blew my mind, but I remember talking to you after the class. And I remember saying, I'm here because I want to be an animator and I want to work for Disney. And you immediately were talking about the nine old men and Glenn Keane. And I was like, nobody else knows these guys around here. (laughs) You know, I mean, Barbara did, but like nobody else none of my peers, nobody else kind of knew who these people were. And I was like, wait, you know, these guys, let's talk about them. (laughs) I I had immediately found a a friend Mm -hmm. in that, like, Oh, you're, I, you're not, you're not just a story guy. Like you're, you know, about this stuff. And I felt like, Oh, thank you. I, that was so helpful to know somebody that like, you know, had a, had a background in the things that I was interested in and could sort of help me help guide me and like, Oh yeah, well, did you know this about Frank? Did you know this about Glenn? You know, like, and analyze their work together. And so, yeah, so that was very exciting. (laughs) It was exciting for me too. Uh, Because again, the students didn't know that stuff either. Right. So, so, so it was just, Oh, somebody who cares about this stuff and knows, you know, wants to know about Frank Thomas or whatever. Who's yeah. always been my personal favorite animator, but yeah, <laughs> there's something yeah. about Frank Thomas's work that speaks to me like nobody else's. Yeah, and anyway. yeah, and I I love them all for different reasons. Mark Davis was always a big one for me. Mark partly Davis because- is serious. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, and he, you know, Sleeping Beauty was the movie that really solidified me into wanting to be an animator and the idea that he designed not only Aurora, but also Maleficent and animated them. And then I love Disneyland and he did all that work for the parks. And right. you know. Yeah, sure. I could so. see that. I could see that. Oh. You know what it is? I had the illusion of life like early when it first came out. Yeah. And I would look at all of the, you know, they had these drawings. They would have a Freddie Moore thing and you'd see all his drawings, and you, you know. And I remember every time I looked at Frank Oz's stuff, it was each one of his drawings was a lie. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel that with other people. I felt like, oh, this is nice. It's nicely drawn. It's whatever. But I felt like Frank Thomas, I was like, each one of these drawings is actually a lie. It's really yeah. yeah. The, the other thing that I love about Frank is that, um, you know, if, if you can find images of the, the actual drawings, or if, if you have the privilege of going to a museum and seeing the real drawings or the animation research library at Disney, if, if you can somehow get a tour, and if you can see the real drawings that he did, he's so good. He is so good. But what I love about those drawings is you can see the struggle on yeah, the page. You can see it. Like, 
it wasn't like he just drew it and he was like this magician computer that like outputted the perfect drawing. Right. Like you see kind of the erasure marks and like how he had drawn the arm here, but now he's drawing it here because the line of action is stronger through that. And it was like, he worked at it and, you know, and I, all those guys worked at it. I mean, even Melt Call, if you look at Melt Call's thumbnails that he does before he started his scenes, he, he, like there's one in particular for like Robin Hood and it's like he tried every single pose option that you could imagine before he figured out where he was going to go with it, you know? Um, But I love Frank's because he he does have such a real kind of emotion in his work, but you can see it on the page too, that it was, it was a struggle. And it also, it gives me a little bit of kinship of like, I think animation is really hard and you know, I feel like there, it is a struggle for me. And the idea that one of the nine old men maybe struggled a little bit too through some of that stuff is, is great. Cause you know, I look at like Milk Hall's drawings and Mark Davis's drawings and I'm like, they just look perfect. <laughs> How sure. do they do that? You know? So. But you know, the thing about looking perfect, there's a scene in, uh, I think I've talked about this on the show too, but there's a scene in, um, the movie Summerstock with Gene Kelly, where he dances on a piece of newspaper. Yeah. And Gene Kelly had a way of making everything look like he could just do it. But he worked and worked and worked on that newspaper thing forever to make it look like he's not working, you know? And that's often the case that when it looks effortless, what that really is, is so much work that it, that it looks effortless. Um, and I'm, I'm also a huge fan of Gene Kelly, uh, yeah. but Gene always talked about every, every dance that he created, every move that he did had to have a raison d'etre. So it had to have a reason for being. And yep. so, you know, I look at his work and it's like, I can see kind of the armature in his work, yep. mm-hmm. you know, and he had, he had reasons and choices for why he was doing the things that he was doing. Um, but yeah, the, the simple, the simple stuff is always the hardest. Yeah. And in fact, I'm, I'm getting to work with, um, uh, Byron Howard, who was one of the directors on Tangled. He's an amazing animator, hand-drawn animator. And, uh, but I've worked with him on several films now and he is somebody that often wants less. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, we're animators. And so we think, Oh, we got to make the characters move. That's what I do. But a lot of times it's like, no, the scene only needs to be one pose. Yeah. That is so hard. It is so hard to just do a one pose scene. Yes. And pe- people think that, no, I, I'm not doing my job. I'm not making it move enough, you know? Um, but sometimes nothing is the hardest thing to do. It is the hardest thing to do. There, there is a term from what I understand and I don't know it. Um, but I think in Japanese, um, that basically me is the art of not doing the art of doing nothing, which we don't have in English. We don't think of those things that way. Um, but there's often in writing in acting in all these things where I'm like, you don't need to do all that stuff. Don't the, the, the less you do, the better this is going to be. Um, uh, and it's funny when your job is to do something, you think you have to do it all the time, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. Don't, don't do that right now. Well, what you know but it's only the people at the top who know that at least in this culture yeah 
oh, don't do that. Don't do anything. I remember there was an interview with Paul Newman, um, who was an actor who some people have forgotten. People don't know Paul Newman anymore, which makes me sad. But uh, Paul Newman used to say if he, he didn't like watching his old movies because he saw himself working so hard. Because I see myself working too hard. It's not yeah. that hard, you know? It's like, you know, but after years, the decades of doing it, he got to the point where it was like, oh, I don't do anything and that works better, you know, but it takes a long time to get there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to, but no, in fact, my very first mentor that I had when I got to Disney, uh, his name is Eric Walls and he's, he's both a 2D and a CG animator. And he, I would start a scene and he would say, okay, you can only have three golden poses. And it was sort of, I was like, only three like i need a little more to like show my intention and he was like well do the three then we'll look at it you know and so it was like okay i had to break it down into like a beginning middle and an end yeah and i had to like really craft those poses and figure out like okay how can i communicate what i want to communicate in only those three and then i would show it to him and and he'd be like okay great uh you know like we would work on those poses and then, you know, then he would sort of like approve that and like, okay, now you can break it down and like work into like the movement between the, the, the three, but it was so fresh. I mean, he was a great teacher, but it was so frustrating and so hard to only do three. Yeah. It's funny. I've been asked, you know, the story spine, the, the seven step, you know, once upon a time in every day that the story spine, uh, the way that I teach it, it's seven steps. A lot of people teach it that way. I'm not the only person who teaches it that way. But there are a lot of times people say, well, you can add more steps. You should be able to add more steps. And there are people that like, why are you so strict about just seven? You know, And it's because it forces you to be more precise. Yep. The hardest thing for people to learn is to condense and to be precise, um, which is the way that I've started thinking about simplicity. Simplicity is not about simplicity. Simplicity is about precision. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so it's this and only this. This is the perfect thing. This is the right thing. It, it forces you to eliminate everything that's not necessary. Yeah. And communicate more clearly. So it's all about precision. So I'm like, no, you only get seven. It's like, oh, but I want to add stuff. It's like, you only get seven. You can do it. And it's really hard. It's a hard thing to learn. Um, yeah. People almost feel like you're torturing them when you make them <laughs> do things some simple. Um, yeah. It's, but- it's always why I loved how you described, you know, theme or the armature as, you know, like you have an armature in the sculpture and everything has to hang off of that. And anything that, that isn't being supported by that armature, it's going to fall off, you right. know, not going to work. And I, I think sometimes, you know, those, it's it can be frustrating to work through those things but also some of those constraints give you better answers in the end yeah i mean even even something even like physical like technology constraints like i think about um i remember hearing a talk for you know one of like the visual effects supervisors for some of the original star wars movies and they were talking about kind of the uh i think it was a green screen process or whatever of when they were doing the ships, they couldn't have reflective material on the ships right? because it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Right. And 
So they had to come up, they had to make the ships mat. And so then they thought, okay, well, you know, we'll kind of beat them up and, and, you know, I, I don't know, put dirt on them and things like that. And I was like, but that added to the authenticity of it. It looked like those ships had been through space. Right. You know, like they weren't off of the showroom floor. <laughs> they were, yeah. you know, it, it was a, it was a better, more precise answer that they found because of that constraint. Yeah. That's usually what happens. The constraints um, are really helpful. Um, and if you don't have them, it helps to create them. Yeah. You know, if you don't have them, if you can do anything, the problem with being able to do anything is that's an infinite number of possibilities, right? You need to get it to a finite number of possibilities, right? So you can make decisions about what to keep and what to throw out. Um, and, and being precise is all about that. It's all about knowing what to keep and what to throw out. Um, and what's funny to me too, is that, um, I think that when people intellectualize this, and this may sound like we're intellectualizing it, but it's really a way to get past the intellectual in a weird way. But there are people who want to be smart and they want to be seen as smart. And so they tend to want to complicate things because I think they want to be seen. And so they, they, they will dismiss simplicity um, and throw in more complication, throw in more, it's going to be hard to understand. It's going to be hard, you know, because, and that always puts people in their heads and gets them out of their gut, out of their heart to experience the emotion of what you're doing. But I do find that, that this, the restraints, they end up helping you in ways that you can't, you couldn't predict and that it makes you solve the hard problems. And when you yeah. solve the hard problems, it's funny, when you really solve a really hard problem, it looks inevitable. I remember there was an interview with John Williams and he was talking about, or it was in a book or something, and he was talking about um, like the Raiders of the Lost, Lost Ark theme or something. And he says, you know, it's really hard and it takes a long time to come up with the right notes to make it feel inevitable. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. But that's what he's doing. He's working very hard. He's throwing out a ton of stuff. And I don't know what he uses as an armature or a guide when he's doing Raiders, Star Wars or Jaws or whatever. Um, I do know a little bit about what he thought of with Jaws, which is interesting because he, he was like, well, it's sort of this, this, uh, what did he say? How did he say it? Basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he was like, well, it's this killing machine. So it's just always, you know, it's moving along and it's this kind of dun dun. Dun, dun, and you can speed it up. Dun, 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 dun. It's two notes. Dun, 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 dun. It's two notes. Talk about precision. Yeah. Two notes? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Spielberg laughed yeah. heard it the first time. He goes, John Williams is like, this is what I'm thinking. He's like, really? That's what you're thinking? Well, oh, hear me out. And he played it for him. And eventually, you know, Spielberg's like, that's great. But it's so simple. Yeah. Uh, it, but it couldn't be more effective. The Jaws music could not be more effective. Yeah. Well, yeah. you have, I've heard you tell a story about, is it, uh, is it somewhere over the rainbow or one of a famous song like that, where it's like, can you play it with one finger? Yep. Yeah. It's, it's, it's over the rainbow. Yeah. If yeah. You play it with one finger, right. That's, that's getting it down to its, its most simple, precise form. 
You can build on that. Yeah. But you have to be able to get it down to that. Um, And if you can do that, it's amazing what happens. Um, In fact, speaking of like not doing much, there were times, there are times when you watch a Chuck Jones thing where the gag isn't the gag. The gag is a raised eyebrow. Yeah. Right. The gag is just pupils shrinking or growing or right. Right. That's the gag. And it's the most hilarious thing, no matter what the chaos, no matter what the thing is, that simple thing. It's a little movement here or a little twitch or it's a little, it's amazing how precise he could be. Yeah. It's amazing, especially in the Chuck, in the Chuck Jones ones, how little he does and how funny they are, because it's like, I think in general, like, you know, I think the world just thinks of Warner brothers is like, Oh, it's real cartoony and zippy and, and things like that. But if you watch some of those Chuck Jones things, it's just a pose. It's like one right. pose. There's so much restraint within that. I mean, the yeah. pose may push, um, the comedy is certainly pushed to the max, but it's, it's only a pose. And that is what is entertaining and funny yeah. and you don't need anything else. Right. Yeah. yeah he was very good at going, this is all we need. You know, it's very good at it. Um, yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't look like anything. It doesn't look like anything was done. Uh, but that's often the very best work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it is one of those things where I, I know like a lot of, you know, movie makers and magicians and, you know, people like that, you know, they say like, my job is to, for you not to know that I'm here. You know, it's like, I don't, when you see a scene that I've animated, I don't want you to feel like, oh, I'm seeing the, the, the hand of the animator, like, you know, moving that puppet around or drawing that, that yeah. character. It's like, you, you want to just fade into the background and make it look like that's, that's that character. It's easy. It's oh how it was always meant to be. And that there's not this work, work person <laughs> behind the scenes. Yeah. Doing all. I mean, I, I, you know, um, one of the cool things about being in this business at all is, is the people that you get to meet because a lot of times you get to meet people who you grew up admiring and you get to hang out with them and be their friend or work with them. And it's sometimes it's a little mind blowing. And, um, I feel that way about Glenn and I feel that way about Frank Oz. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, I know Frank Oz now, like it's a weird, feeling he couldn't be a nicer more down-to-earth human being um um i really like him as a person and part of me is like okay i'm talking to frank guys the person and part of me is i'm talking to frank guys the guy who practically taught me how to read because of sesame street right <laughs> like it's like you know there's two things but one of the things about frank is he's exactly the invisible but like the fact that there's a person working cookie monster doesn't make sense in my brain still Right. And that it's Frank. You know what I mean? Or Grover or Miss Piggy or Yoda or all those things he does. Like, he he does them. Like, he hasn't done them for a while, but he, that's him, but it's not him. And it's hard for me to imagine that it is him. Like, those, they're alive, those characters. Um, It's an amazing thing, but he makes it look easy. Yeah. Um, well, he doesn't make it look easy. He doesn't make it look like work at all. He does make it look like he's not even there. Yeah. Yeah. It's a yep. fascinating skill. I know. And yeah. a hard one. And a really hard one. <laughs> yeah. 
So, okay. So, uh, we, okay. We've gotten you to California. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, right. I was, I was talking about animation mentor. Mm-hmm. So yeah. while I was still in Washington, I signed up uh, with a couple other uh, guys from the capstone class who you'll remember Ryan Sluman and David Lewis. We, the three of us together decided to sign up for this new thing, animation mentor. And it was, you know, we would be individually sort of mentored by animators working in the major studios. So I was like, great. I'm finally going to have a, like a professional animator working at the feature level, look at my work and help me and critique it. And it was an 18 month program. And um, I had great mentors through there. It was, it was like all of the thing, you know, in my college career doing, doing computer science and doing French and trying to do art on the side, there were, there were a lot of things and I was trying to smush all of those things into this, this, avenue to get me to Disney. And it was like, when I got to animation mentor, I finally felt like, okay, I am focusing on actual animation right now. Sure. Yeah. And, and that was a great feeling and getting feedback from those people. Um, so in my, there were six classes in animation mentor and the fifth class, uh, you storyboard like a short that you're going to animate in your sixth class. And my mentor during that time was Dean Wellens, who is, uh, if you've watched the commentary on Iron Giant, you will know that Dean not only storyboarded half of that movie, but he he animated a lot of stuff. He, he's amazing. He's a director at Disney now. I mean, so I had like top-notch quality mentors, an animation yeah. mentor. Um, I decided that, well, I'm, I'm getting to the end of my animation mentor time. I'm going to have a, a reel of, of work that I've done during this class. So I'm going to have to get a job after this. That was getting really scary because this was like, am I going to get my dream or am I not? Right, right. <laughs> and I decided to, well, I need to move to California so that if any of these places offer me a job, I'm there and ready to go. And my best friend uh, was actually living uh, uh, down in Southern California at the time and her roommate was getting married. So I was like, great, I'll move in with you. <laughs> And so I, I moved to California and I finished up animation mentor there. And so I was one step closer to, <laughs> to, uh, trying to fulfill my dream there. So you started getting work, right? I, I remember trying to remember what you were first working on. First thing I yeah. is fault. Did you do something before that? Yeah, I did. I, so with animation mentor, I, I sent out my student, like the work that I had done at that, at that, uh, program, I, I made a demo reel um, and I sent it out to Disney. I sent it out to Rhythm and Hughes and a bunch of other places. Um, Rhythm and Hughes called me and uh, they said, we have an apprenticeship program and it would be a month program where you kind of just train on our system. And then uh, you will probably roll into being like a junior animator on Alvin and the Chipmunks. Okay. Oh, I remember. So, yeah. Yeah. So my very first gig was um, working on the the CG. <laughs> to clarify, the CG uh, movie version of Alvin and the Chipmunks, and so I got to work on that for five months. And then after I finished that, uh, Disney actually called me because I had sent out my reel, like you know, probably six eight months before then, and they called me and they said, "Hey, we're just getting started at about." doing a new trainee program. Um, we haven't done one since the seventies. 
and uh, we'd like you to come. (laughs) And I was just like, I was shaking. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it uh, because it was like my, my dream was happening. And um, I remember, I remember trying, I had just gotten a phone call. That's all I got. And I hung up and I was like, wait, I have no proof. Like I have nothing to to say, like that I got a call. I have nothing, you know? Um, And it was, it was a long while before I heard from them again. And then I would try to call the number and I'd always get the voicemail. And one time I called the lady who I love, but I called her and I was like, yeah, you called me. And I, you know, I just wanted to know when I might hear back. And she like misheard my name. And so she thought I was just like another candidate calling that she had called and she was going to hang up on me. And I was like, no, don't hang up on me. I got an offer from you guys, but I haven't, I haven't gotten a letter or anything. Yeah. So anyway, it was, it was so surreal, but um, yeah, my, it, the timing was great because who knew that they would start, you know, I graduated in 2005 from UW and doing animation mentor sort of bridged me to a time where not only was Rhythm and Hughes doing an apprenticeship program, but Disney was looking to do a trainee program. And it's like, I, I'm so, I'm so kind of amazed at how that timing worked out so perfectly, yeah, no you kidding. know? Um, so yeah, so I, I, I got to go to Disney and my first film there was Bolt and I was just like a fix animator, you know? So I, I did little things here and there, and then um, they kept me on after that. So I became my first credit as a full fledged animator was Tangled. So okay, uh, since you've been a full fledged animator, <laughs> um, what about the job is different than you thought it might be? And well, let's start there. So, what about the job is different than you thought it might be when it, it's a fantasy versus the reality of the job? Um, that's an interesting question. And I, I don't, I don't mean to sound like fake about this. I mean this with all sincerity. It has fulfilled every fantasy that I have had, but it's even better. I um, I, you know, I, I remember walking into the building and I saw Eric Goldberg and I saw, you know, I was like, that guy's a genie. Like I, I was walking in the halls with the people that had really shaped my childhood, you know, I mean, the nine old men weren't there anymore, but, but it was like the, the Renaissance of, you know, Glenn Keane and the little mermaid and, and all of those films that had captured me at the right time to really <laughs> lock me yeah. into the Disney, um, the Disney track. Um, it was like, I get to work with them in person and learn from them. Like that was so incredible. And, um, I I think, you know, I, I was very, I mean, this happened in school, but I was very relieved that I got to focus on the acting Mm -hmm. and I got to sort of be these characters and that we really like, we took improv classes and we, we took drawing classes, but we, we were really sort of focused on becoming actors. And uh, it it felt like it was, it was kind of the film school that I was never brave enough to go attend. Cause I, you know, I didn't want to be an actor myself, but I do get to do that now. And so 
Um, so that was great. But the idea that I could be there in person with a whole building full of people that were so much more talented than me and at a higher level than me and that they were helping me. That mm -hmm. was, that's still mind blowing to me every single day. Like I'm this past, you know, year or so, I haven't been able to walk into the building, but when I do, like, I literally still pinch myself. You know, I still get goosebumps when I like see the little hat above, above the entrance yeah. and I walk in there. Um, so yeah, it, it is absolutely everything I imagined and more. So it is like that to be there. I mean, I, I, I've only worked there and, you know, as a lecturer and uh, when I worked with Glenn Keane on his movie for a little while, um, which was great because we were in. Frank and Ollie's really uh, their old sort of space uh, which yeah. just to be in that space, just to be in D wing. If anybody's an animation geek was insane just to be there. Um, yeah. And, and Glenn knows all the history of everything. So he would point to everything like this is when this is where Milk Hall's office was. And this is this and this is that. And uh, it does feel like you're walking around in a dream sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting feeling. Um, my, my favorite thing that happened to me when I was at Disney working with Glenn, I don't know if I told this on the show or not, but I was, uh, walking, we were working together on his movie. I'm half doing my job, being a pro and half freaking out that I'm working with Glenn Keane on his movie, right? Both those things are happening at the same time. We go out to get a cup of coffee or something just to take a walk. And so we step out and there's a young guy, young animator and his friend and his, he want this guy wanted to introduce his friend to Glenn and Glenn is, you know, so he comes up and he's like, Glenn, Hey, I want to just want you to meet my friend. And he's, and uh, Glenn's like, well, we're, we're kind of working right now. We're kind of busy and um, very polite. You know, how Glenn is, but, but yep. you know, like we're working. And he goes, well, just real quick, I want you to meet so-and-so, so-and-so. And so they meet. And then Glenn says, oh, by the way, this is, this is Brian McDonald. Now, I'm freaking out that I'm working with Glenn. And this guy looks at me and he says, you're Brian McDonald? I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, dude, I love your book. And he went on. And I'm like, I'm standing next to Glenn Keith. <laughs> like, 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 like I, I don't know if I'm, it was just, it was a weird feeling. It's, it's like one of the freakiest things that happened to me. It happened to me with August Wilson one time too. Similar thing. Uh, Where I was with August and somebody recognized me and not August. And that never happened when I was with him. <laughs> they're like, you're a filmmaker. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, dude, and I'm right next to August. But yeah, so uh, it's weird when that, that happens too. And I, that's not why I'm in this, but, um, um, but it, was freak, it was freaking me out because I'm freaking out over Glenn. And then this guy's freaking out over me and I, I'm like, oh, maybe I am part of this club. Maybe I, yeah. you know, maybe I am one of these guys. It, it, it didn't, it felt like I was invited uh, to hang out, but not really part of the club. But then I felt like part of the club. Like now I feel like part of the club, um, even though I don't work there very much. Um, it's been a while since I've been back to, to Disney, um, Disney proper. Yeah, uh, you need to come back. <laughs> I'll come back. Um, but it was fun. It was dreamlike. I, so I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, what kinds of things do you, like, I heard you talk once after you've been working there for a while and you were saying things 
And I'm like, oh, those are things, of course, she's learned since, since I was around her a lot. So what kinds of things have you learned about your job? Like what, when you are animating, now you've animated um, the character, well, you're, you're, the character that I hear about when, I, when I'm talking about you with somebody, I always mention Judy Hopps uh-huh. from uh, Zootopia. And people freak out. Like people love Judy Hopps, right? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Do people recognize you and Judy Hopps? And can, is there something that you, um, what is it that you could bring to that character, for instance, when you did her versus when you first started, like when you were working on another thing and you first started, like, what have you learned that makes you better at your job than you were when you first started? Oh, these are such hard questions. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the basics never get old. Yes. The basics are sort of always the things that I'm forgetting and needing to remind myself and learn again. So I, I don't know that there is there there have been like huge revelations of like, oh, this was some big secret that was held on until I got inside the Disney, the Disney walls. But um, I mean, I would say with with Judy, it 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 sort of solidified all of those things that had, had kind of been hinting at before of like, I really need to find that personal connection uh, for me uh, in order to make this character believable. And uh, the thing about Judy that was so strange actually was that initially when we started the movie, she was not the main character. Nick the Fox was the main character. And then they cast uh, Jennifer Goodwin uh, to do the voice. And, um, you know, she, she has a very like kind of sweet voice, but she was coming in and she was, uh, Judy was like a very seasoned cop. She kind of been there, done that. She was, you know, knew it all. Like it, it was just kind of old hat for her. And so uh, Jennifer was doing kind of a, uh, a relaxed kind of uh almost like a Southern accent kind of thing. And as the, sh- the story was, was taking shape, I know that you say a lot, like, you know, you're, you're a servant to the story. Like the story kind of tells you what it needs to be. And the story was shifting and they were sort of deciding, they were sort of discovering that like, actually this needs to be Judy's story mm-hmm. and her character like her personality, this is not, this is not who she is. And she suddenly became this optimistic dreamer, you know, like kind of a glass half full kind of bunny. And it was like, she, she was looking at the ZPD and and becoming a police officer, like no other rabbit had ever done that before. Um, That was her dream. And it didn't phase her that no other rabbit had ever done that before, or that that was a real big ask versus this tiny little bunny when the other officers were these rhinos and tigers and, you know, things like that. But I obviously connected to that just from a dreaming to be at Disney, Yeah, yeah. you know? And, and so during the production, everybody was joking, like even, even one of the sweaters that she wears, I had a sweater like that. And so I was just walking around, <laughs> I was walking around work and they're like, she's just kind of turning into you <laughs> in some ways, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I could totally see know? that. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a real, a real strong connection uh, to where I felt like that character was coming from. And, and, and so it, that really became clear to me, I think on that, 
picture that, oh, I need to do this all the time because this is, this is what, this is what does it. And that was an interesting um, experience because I was supervising for the first time. So even when I wasn't animating the things, the, the scenes, I was sort of giving notes on other people's scenes and, you know, not only encouraging them to find that authentic part of themselves to bring to it, but, you know, trying to find that through line so that you would believe this is all done. This is a real living character. It's not done by 90 people. Right. You know, I didn't, I didn't animate Judy all the way through the movie. You know, I did a small part of that, Uh, but we have, we have 80, 90 animators on these films sometimes, and we all touch the main character. So, you know, um, I don't think that really answered your question, but <laughs> no, it, it sort of did. Um, what I think that when people are first learning these kinds of crafts, it's often focused on the external for a long time. How do you move that? How does that look? How does that right? Yeah. It it's always the external. It's the thing I say about uh, screenplays where it's always about the dialogue, right? Like it's good because the dialogue is what's on the surface. That's what people can see, if you know what I mean. Um, But the structure of a scene or where it falls in the storyline can have just as much or more impact than the dialogue. Um, In fact, sometimes people are talking too much in a movie. Again, you could not say anything and maybe that would be more popular. Right. Right. Um, But I I never hear young screenwriters talk like that. They're all about dialogue. Um, But they also don't go inside themselves very much. And that seems to be the thing that people get better at over time with these kinds of crafts. Better at going inside. Better at looking inside. And trying to bring that out. Yeah. Um, And then it's it's, uh, getting beyond the. And it feels like, it sounds like that's what you're talking about. Figuring out how to get, go in rather than think about the surface as much. Right, right. right? And actually, it's something that you reminded me of when you were talking about kind of like how the scene fits into the storyline. One of the things that I actually do feel like dawned on me when I got to Disney uh, was the con- like looking at your scene in context, in continuity. Like we're not animating individual scenes for our demo reels. Like it's not, they're not standalone little shorts. Right. And so uh, being able to watch the scene that you're animating in the entire sequence of scenes, you know, I make different choices of, you know what? I need to not gesture here because that gesture needs to happen three scenes down the way. Right. And I think in a school setting, um, you know, you might work on a film, you know, a student film, but it's, it's shorter. But seeing that consistently over several films of how important uh, the continuity is, I, I remember, again, I think Tangled was a huge lesson on, on just stripping out anything that you don't need, you know, and Glenn obviously was a huge proponent of that. So Byron Howard and Nathan Greno, everybody was just less is more, you know? And so that, it was such a hard, hard lesson, but such a great lesson. Um, But that was one of those things where you would sit with your scene at your desk and you would think this, I mean, 
I'm not even moving the characters. This is not, this is not going to communicate what they need. And, you know, you show it in dailies and they approve it. And you're like, okay, well, I guess they like it, you know? And it, but what I was not seeing was when I sat in the theater and I watched it all play together, I was like, oh, now I get it. Yeah. Because I had tunnel vision on just the thing that was on my desk. Yeah. And so now, and, you know, it's another problem that I constantly have is like, you know, we animate about five feet a week, you know, which is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very slow. It's very slow. When I tell people that, that's usually when you see whether or not they want to be an animator. Because <laughs> they're like, <laughs> oh, that's it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, I'm watching, you know, a couple seconds, three seconds loop over and over and over and over again. And that can be on my desk for a week or two weeks or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, it, it's not until, you know, I get your eyes are not fresh anymore. You're not a good judge of the work that you've done because you've just seen it so much. You need to show other people to get feedback. And the same thing I found true with just like I need to watch this not only in the sequence, but then in the movie and having backing up and like just saving out a movie file and saying, I'm going to play this and watch the whole sequence and see what other people are doing and see how mine is fitting into that. Sometimes that gives me the fresh eyes that I needed to make a better choice. Sure. So. Yeah. It's also, um, I think, well, it's what you were talking about earlier, right? It's being a servant of the story, right? The tunnel vision doesn't allow you to do that, right? Right. But when you're looking at everything, you're like, oh, wait, if I look at the whole story or the whole sequence or whatever, then I'm not being a, I'm being a show off, maybe, right? I'm showing how, how great I am at this or how funny I can be or how whatever. And maybe that's not what this needs now because I've got to save that, like you said. And so that becomes... Um, you're, you're able to take a backseat to the story and you're okay doing that when you realize, well, that's my job, right? Um, yeah. But when you first get in, I think people think their job is to show off and show how good they are and show how much they're contributing. And it's exactly the wrong thing to do most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that really stood out to me was, um, I, again, I talk about Glenn a lot, but um, really admire that guy. And mm-hmm. he, he's so great. But one of the things that he said to us on Tangled was, um, when you make a mistake, because you will make a mistake, just make sure you don't make it in the eyes, because that's where everybody's looking. Wow. And that always stays with me. So oh, I, I, yeah. So I pay the most attention to the eyes, you know, like if, if the arc isn't perfect on the arm that's swinging down below, but if I get the eyes right, nobody's going to notice that. You know, it's a, it's a magician's trick too. One of the ways that a magician gets you to look where they want you to look is by looking them. Because we will look where they look. Interesting. So they don't have to do any crazy thing to misdirect you. They just go like this and you go <laughs> and then do whatever they have to do. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And That's, clever. Yeah. It, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an observation, right? Oh, people look where you look. I can exploit yeah. that. There's nothing unnatural. So when you look, you haven't done anything unnatural. 
right? And them looking, yeah. you haven't forced them to do anything. Right. right. Uh, yeah. They can also direct your attention by saying, I'm going to make this cup float. Right. <laughs> now you'll look. But, but, uh, but yeah, but one of the ways they, they get you to look is to look because we just yeah. automatically will look at eyes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, it, and it's funny because when I was an animation mentor, I had a, a mentor, his name was James Brown, not the singer. Um, but that would have been an interesting career for one guy. It, it would have, yeah. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he gave me like some notes on polish that I had, it, it was like unlocking a new level of polish that I had never considered before. And I had a scene where it was basically just the eyes looking around but he was like well you know the eyes have a cornea bulge and when the iris and the pupil move over that's gonna like cause the lid to change shape so you want to as the eyes are moving you want to change the shape of the lids so that it's also supporting the direction that they're looking and i remember thinking oh i never it never even occurred to me to put that level of detail into into stuff and so and the moment that i did i was like it feels so much more alive you know and it and it was really that lesson of the eyes so i always spend the most time there uh no matter what i'm doing that's i want to get those eyes looking the best and the most you know sort of believable that i can um and the eyes are big at Disney. Yeah. They are. They the are. Eyes, eyes are big. Yeah. 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 They're yeah. almost like, look at, look, look at me. Look yeah. at me. Yeah, yeah. So definitely don't make a mistake there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Judy Hopps had pretty big eyes. She did. And they were purple. So. <laughs> were they purple? I don't remember. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Who made, wh- why were they purple? You know? You know what? Again, I'm the animator who I'm moves the character. I don't, I don't decide, uh, you know, what she was going to look like or uh, what color she was. She was actually a more of a beige brown rabbit in the beginning. And then she turned gray. And I think it was just to complement kind of the gray fur or whatever. But I was like, oh, she's even looking like my cat. Like I had a gray and white cat and then Judy, <laughs> you know, it was just I felt like it was a meant to be pairing. <laughs> it, it does feel like that. For if people know you and they see like I, I felt that I don't see I don't think what other people see like I don't I couldn't guess which shots you are yours scenes are yours but Judy does feel like you oh that's funny yeah yeah well thank you yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's good it's good yeah. um yeah. yeah she's great and then you did some things I want to talk to you a little bit about like how you approach a character like that um you used animal traits, right? You used. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, it was a really fun puzzle because it was like, okay, you know, the research part of it is one of the most fun things I think that we get to do. And, you know, so we had these anthropomorphic animals, but the whole concept of the world was that like, you know, these animals had evolved to, walk on two feet and wear clothes and talk and things like that. And so we really wanted them to feel as authentically those animals as possible while still acting anthropomorphic like humans, you know? So the goal was not to create walk around characters where it felt like it was a human inside a rabbit suit or a fox inside of 
uh, a human inside a, a fox suit. Yeah. And so it was trying to find, okay, what are, where is, where is that magic where you can pull the most uh, recognizable and distinct traits from these animals and still include it on a bipedal anthropomorphic performance. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, we went to animal sanctuaries and we went to zoos and, and then our head of animation actually got to go on a trip with the directors to Kenya and they went on an amazing safari. See, our jobs are really cool sometimes. Yeah, uh, he went on, on this amazing safari and he, he got to observe, I mean, not rabbits as much, but he got to observe a lot of the other animals that we see in the film uh, out in the wild and in their natural habitat. And the thing that was interesting is the guy that led them on their safari, he actually came to the studio uh, before to talk to us. And he had grown up in Kenya and, you know, he, the, the thing that was so striking about it is he talked about lions and zebras and all of these, like, in my mind, exotic animals as if they were cats and dogs. Like he right. sees them every day kind of thing. Right. And it's like, he commented, he's like, oh, lions, they're so lazy. And I'm like, <laughs> I would have never attributed lazy to a lion, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but it was that he had just been there out observing them on a daily basis, not kind of in a zoo environment or, you know, um, he got to kind of see their real personalities. And so then he took this small group of our team out to experience that. And um, Renato, who uh, was the head of animation on Zootopia, he came back and he was looking at, we were doing, uh, some cycles, uh, so walk cycles. We were trying to find where is that line between human and animal. So we were doing a lot of tests and just trying to figure out the locomotion of these characters. He came back from his trip on Kenya and he looked at all of our stuff. And in a very nice way, he basically said, we're doing this all wrong. <laughs> None of this feels like these animals. And so they had filmed a lot of video footage of, you know, these characters, these like giraffes, like running, <laughs> running through the field, but just out in the wild, like how they, they naturally acted. And uh, so we analyzed all that and try, and it was really helpful to have him, Renato, have that, that firsthand experience to say, this is not only what we're seeing, but this is what it feels like. Right. And, um, and so again, we, we would, you know, look at each animal and, and figure out, okay, like if you strip away all of these other things that make it an animal, what are the things that you need to leave in order for you still to read that character as, or that animal as that animal? Sure. And so for Judy, you know, obviously she had huge ears. Rabbits have amazing hearing, but their, their hearing is better than their eyesight. So, uh, obviously their ear is going to turn often before any other part of their body moves, because that is what is, you know, sensing the sound or the danger or whatever. And so a lot of times we work to like have the ears lead the action uh, in the movement. Um, A lot of it too was just, you know, their nose, their noses twitch when they get uh, stressed 
or, uh, you know, there's, they're kind of a high alert situation. And so we would try to like add those things when, when she was getting panicked or there was a tense situation, we, we'd start that nose going a little, (laughs) a little faster, but even down to the posture, rabbits do go up on like their hind legs, but they aren't, if you look at a human standing upright, they're very stacked, like their, their chest cavity is stacked kind of above their hips, and it's a very vertical line. But when rabbits are up on their hind legs, there's kind of almost, we lovingly called it the squirrel back, because a lot of animals have it, but it's like their chest cavity is, is a little bit forward over their hips. And so there's a little bit of a diagonal there. So we really tried that even when Judy is upright and standing, that she is standing like she, her posture is a little bit leaned forward so that it doesn't feel as human as it would if, if her hips are right underneath her. Um, and then there were moments where, you know, she is startled or very high stressed and we'd be like, you know what, she's going to go down on all fours and, and scramble out of the way because, you know, her instincts, her natural instincts are taking over in these moments. Sure. So that feels like maybe that's a natural thing for her to do. So it was trying to find those things that that not only made sense for her character and thematically with the story, but also made her feel more like the animal that she was. It, it's fascinating because I don't think that people. People watching, I think, you know, when the rabbit's acting like a rabbit without knowing that. You know what I mean? I think as yeah. an audience, you don't have to know those things about rabbits, but it feels right. Um, um, and I don't know if people understand how much work goes into making those things feel right. Um, yeah. Um, and so I think that's, um, I think I, I, I told this story a million times, but it fascinated me. Um, one of the years that the, in the animation capstone, uh, the students were doing a film that took place in the woods. And, uh, you know, it's right by the Arboretum, the University of Washington. It's like, there are Arboretum's right there. I'm like, you should go into the Arboretum and hang out. And they were like, well, we went on the internet and looked at trees. I'm like, no, no, no. Go. It's right there. Go to the Arboretum and hang out. And it was like they didn't understand there was a difference between seeing a picture of a tree and walking through the woods. Yep. And the difference that could make. Yeah, um, they yeah, it, 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 it baffled me um, that they wouldn't just go like, first of all, it's not a hardship to go hang out in the Arboretum. So I don't, no. you know, like, like just go hang out. You're going to learn things just from observation that you're not going to learn looking at a picture or a few pictures um, or guessing about. Yeah. Them. Well, um, I, I feel like I've heard you talk about this, too, where uh when you are doing your research, like if you're doing a story that's set in like the 1940s, like surrounding yourself with things that were made there, like if you're watching movies that were made then or music that was made then, of just kind of immersing yourself with that stuff, you glean things that you didn't even know you were looking for kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's, that's really the fun thing for me in research because it's like, I don't, I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'm, it, it's my time to observe as much as I can. 
Yeah. And, you know, and yeah, we're not always able to go and be in these places, but finding as much as you can to put yourself in those moments. Like if, if Renato hadn't gone to Africa, Zootopia would have been a very different movie, especially animation wise, Sure, you know, um, that changed everything that we were doing. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so even though that sounds like a fun and extravagant trip, it was necessary and useful. I love that time. I wish we had more time. You know, I could just live in the research phase. <laughs> no, the research is fun. Once you, once you make friends with it, you know, a lot of people think it gets in the way they want to do the thing, but once you make friends with it, it's amazing, especially, um, what I call the soft research, which is when you don't know what you're looking for and you're just observing and you're just taking stuff in. That's really, there's hard research search, like, well, wait, how does a rabbit move? Like, what are they, you know, what are they, what's yeah. their bone structure, right? But then just hanging out and watching rabbits and seeing what you see can yes. be like, oh, look at that. I didn't, I never noticed that before. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, here's the thing. I want to talk to you more, but I, I think we, we, you know, there's only so much time. So uh, I, I, um, I couldn't be prouder of, of what you've been able to do. Um, it's nice for me to have been a part of it um, and to um, have helped you get there. This dream you had since you were a little girl, it's, uh, it's unbelievably rewarding to me. Um, and I could not be prouder when I go to the movies and I see something that you did. And um, always happy to talk to you and see how your life is going and how your career is going. And... Uh, um, yeah, I, uh, my heart burst with pride over the things that you've been able to do and, uh, the, the, uh, the person you have become. So, Aww. yeah. Well, so thank you, thank you Brian. I mean, you know, you are my favorite teacher and I, you know, I, I literally think about the stuff that you've taught me every single day and I'm super jealous that I don't get to TA that class every day. Cause I, I feel like I've been deprived <laughs> for a long time. I'm so glad you're doing these podcasts and these videos because I have them on while I'm working. I've sent them out to all the Disney animators. Um, they're enjoying them as well. So um, thank you for doing all this. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot. I hope we, we talk soon. It's yeah. too long since we've talked. So. I know. I yeah. know. Every now and then we'll, we'll, on the phone, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, cool. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Bye, Kira. Bye. Thanks for watching. You are a storyteller, part of the CoLoop Podcast Network. If you have any questions or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, leave a comment below or email us at hello at beliefagency.com.